Welcome to the Pearl of Great Price podcast. Thanks for joining us today. It's the 10th of August and this day in Christian history. We go back to the year 1863 and we travel to Rome, where Pope Pius IX issued an encyclical in which he expressed the possibility that non-Catholics and non-Christians may be saved. This was a bold step for a Pope, as at the first time this nuance had been expressed officially in soteriology, that is the theology of salvation, by a pontiff in this way. A widespread understanding of no salvation outside the church, extra ecclesium nulla salus, was common at the time, and probably made sharper in the light of the Reformation and the wars of religion. However, theologians had always understood this statement not to be as black and white as it may seem at the first glance. It all depended on your understanding of what the church is, i.e. what constitutes the church, which is even now a live debate in the branch of theology called ecclesiology. For instance, for some, the church is defined as all those who will be saved with no emphasis on the visible church or the invisible church. It had often been discussed what was the status of the ancient just who had lived before Christ, but were essential in the salvation story, such as Moses, Abraham, Elijah. Confusing the fact that the church taught extra ecclesiam nullus salus did not mean that everybody who is not visibly within the church is necessarily damned in case of inculpable ignorance, for instance, having been born and lived before Christ. Pius had been Pope for 31 years, and this is notable, for he served as the longest verified period as Pope. St. Peter himself was Pope for an unverified 34 to 38 years. John Paul II came in third at 26 years. And during those 31 years, Pope Pius XI was to release a record 38 encyclicals. And today he released one called Quanto Confitiamo, which addressed, among other things, salvation outside of the church. He set out the possibility that non-Catholics may be saved by saying, We and you know that those who lie under invincible ignorance as regards our most holy religion, and who diligently observing the natural law and its precepts, which are engraven by God on the hearts of all, and are prepared to obey God, lead a good and upright life, are able by the operation of the power of divine light and grace, to obtain eternal life. In plain speaking, this meant that God will not condemn those who have not committed a deliberate sin, referred to in moral theology as vincible ignorance, and thus people outside of the church could also achieve salvation. But these nuances of moral theology had to be carefully expressed to avoid slipping into the error of indifferentism, i.e. why bother, 
Why does the church matter at all? The Pope felt it was important that this didn't mean that the church should stop all its work. In fact, he felt that it implied that the church's mission to educate others about Christ is more important. But there is a subtle shift in theological emphasis here. A bit like moving your weight from your back foot to your front foot. As the Augustinian tradition, which dominated Western theology, see the podcast of April the 24th, had advocated the harsh view that the vast majority of the human race were the massa damnata. They would find their way to hell. Although this teaching had been countered at the time in the Christian East, particularly by Origen of Alexandria. The contemporary theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar, see the podcast of June the 26th, in his book Dare We Hope That All Men Will Be Saved, insisted that all Christians have a duty to hope that hell might be empty of human beings. He criticised Aquinas' view and Augustine's view, shared widely in the classical tradition, that part of the joy of heaven was to witness the sufferings of the damned. To balance this, von Balthasar reminds us of a surprising number of saints and mystics, Therese of Lisieux and Catherine of Siena among many, who declared a willingness to suffer on behalf of a denizen of hell, or even at the limit to take his or her place as a gesture of love. This less dogmatic and more mystical tradition in the church can trace itself back to St. Paul himself, who had written in his letter to the Romans, I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own people, my kindred, according to the flesh. The Vatican II document, Lumen Gentium, picks this important debate up. It was one of the four most significant documents to come out of the Council, classified as constitutions, basically saying something important about the nature of the Church. The first constitution was Sacrosantum Concilium, the Constitution on Sacred Liturgy. And then two dogmatic constitutions followed, Lumen Gentium, on the Church, and Dei Verbum, on Divine Revelation. And finally, Gaudium et Spes, on the eve of the closing of the Council, the pastoral constitution on the Church in the modern world. Lumen Gentium, a light to the Gentiles, tried to answer the question, why do we need the Church's teachings after we have received the teachings of Christ. And it attempts to relate the role of scripture and tradition, that is, the post-biblical teaching of the church. It also developed Pius's bold statement about salvation. Lumen Gentium 16 says, Nor is God far distant from those who in shadows and images seek the unknown God, for it is he who gives to all men life and breath and all things, and as a saviour wills that all men be saved. 
Those also can attain to salvation who through no fault of their own do not know the gospel of Christ or his church, yet sincerely seek God and moved by grace strive by their deeds to do his will as it is known to them through the dictates of their conscience. Nor does divine providence deny the help necessary for salvation to those who, without blame on their part, not arrived at an explicit knowledge of God and with his grace strive to live a good life. Most recently, Pope Benedict's encyclical Spe Salvi, meaning saved in hope, develops the theme even further and reflects on the theological virtue of hope. Looking back at Jesus' time and the expectation of liberation from a foreign colonizer, the Romans, Benedict draws a clear distinction between the failed socio-political revolutions or liberations of Spartacus, Barabbas and Bar Kochba with the new non-political hope of Jesus. Concluding that Jesus brought an encounter with the Lord of all lords, an encounter with the living God and thus an encounter with a hope stronger than the sufferings of slavery a hope which transformed life and the world from within. Something that these other revolutionaries could not deliver. Explaining that there was something unique in what Jesus offered as eternal life. He admitted that con- to continue living forever, endlessly, appeared more like a curse than a gift. However, Benedict showed the true shape of Christian hope and how hope, faith and love are intertwined. This echoes an important point that von Balthasar makes when he illustrates with a fascinating story from the life of the mystic Catherine of Siena. She reported a conversation with Christ to her spiritual director, Raymond of Capua. Catherine claimed to have said to Jesus, How could I ever reconcile myself, Lord, to the prospect that a single one of those whom you have created in your image and likeness should become lost and slip from your hands? Christ's answer to Catherine, confided to her spiritual director, is powerful. Love cannot be contained in hell. It would totally annihilate hell. In other words, the love that Catherine is exhibiting, precisely through her hope that all be saved, functions as an antidote to the poison or an obstacle to the entrance of hell. In the Protestant tradition too, there recently have been some interesting insights into this. C.S. Lewis famously argued that the door to hell is locked from the inside by those who, from the bottom of their hearts, want to be left alone. In 2007, American evangelical Rob Bell wrote the New York Times bestseller, Love Wins. And in the book, Bell states that it's been clearly communicated to many that this belief in hell as eternal conscious torment is a central truth of the Christian faith, and to reject it is, in essence, to reject Jesus. This is misguided and toxic. 
and ultimately subverts the contagious spread of Jesus' message of love, peace, forgiveness and joy that our world desperately needs to hear. Echoing von Balthasar, he goes on to say, Whatever objections a person may have of the universalist view, and there are many one has to admit, that it is fitting, proper and Christian to long for it. In the book, Bell also questions what he calls evacuation theology, which has Christians focused on getting to heaven instead of focusing on God's renewal and transformation of this world. Bell argues that Jesus and the wider Jewish tradition of which he was a part focused on God's ongoing restoration of this world, not getting individuals to heaven. There was a fierce backlash to his book from conservative evangelicals, or what Bell described as very narrow, politically intertwined, culturally ghettoized evangelical subculture. He continued to say that evangelicals have turned away lots of people from the church by talking about God in ways that doesn't actually shape people into more and loving, compassionate people. And we need to repent. That's all from the Pearl of Great Price today. Join us tomorrow if you can as we look at the work of the Quaker and the cosmologist and Templeton Prize winner George Ellis. For this year's archive for podcasts, visit www.pogp.net. And if you'd like to give any feedback, you can email us on pogppod at gmail.com. If you have time, please subscribe and share the podcast with friends and have a lovely day wherever you are. And thanks for listening. <laughs>